0: This audio presentation was pre recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley, and welcome to the November 2020 Bright Focus Chat. Today's chat is entitled Future Hope for Geographic Atrophy. Let me tell you about today's guest speaker. His name is Dr. Benjamin Kim. He is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the University of Pennsylvania's Medical School in Philadelphia, and he also sees patients as an ophthalmologist in the Penn medical system, and we're very, at Bright Focus, we're very, very proud through the generosity of our donors to have the chance to work with Dr. Kim uh, over the years as he's worked on um, uh, better understanding and treating uh, age-related macular degeneration, and hopefully we'll have a chance to, to hear, so, hear about some of that work today. So Dr. Dr. Kim, uh, welcome to the Bright Focus chat this morning. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, sure. First, I do want to thank you, Michael, for inviting me to participate in this uh, really terrific series for patients. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, so, I've been at the University of Pennsylvania now for eight years, and uh, as you said, I'm involved in both patient care and research. I, I, I do actually spend about 75% of my time seeing patients, many of whom do have age related macular degeneration. And then a quarter of my time, um, at least really more of that, if you include all the times at nights and weekends, is spent uh, doing clinical research. And one of my ongoing strong research interests has been in the geographic atrophy form of macular degeneration. And um, I had recently completed a a phase two smaller study in geographic atrophy, uh, which turned out to have negative data. Um, but was uh, something involved in this field, and I also was the chair of the safety monitoring committee for the Apellis pharmaceutical phase two study, which which now has a drug that's in phase three clinical trials for geographic atrophy.
0: Great, thank you for sharing your background and kind of the uh, the career day type of question. How did you end up in the fields of science and medicine?
1: Right. Well, for me, it it really was not a hard decision for me. Uh, Ever since I was young, I, I've always had an interest in, in science when I was in school, and my father was a primary care physician and still is practicing, and so I had a lot of exposure to the field of medicine. And I, as a career choice, I really just loved the ability to be involved in both medicine with patient care, but also science with the research that I've been involved in because I... I love the ability to have a, a daily impact, positively positively impact patients on a every day when you see patients and take care of them, but then also have the ability to uh get involved in medical research, which allows you to really have a uh broader long term scale
0: opportunity to make a positive impact. Well, that's great. It really sounds like an exciting uh Balance between the, the 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 patient care and the, a lot of the long term research that you do with Bright Focus and others. And I know you know most of us just generically talk about macular degeneration and sort of a, as an umbrella term. But could you tell us a little bit about um, a couple of the advanced stages of AMD, such as such as wet AMD and and geographic atrophy? Like what? How would you describe these two? Like Would they have similarities or what are their differences?
1: Sure. Uh, so. Many patients have heard these uh, terms wet and dry AMD, and wet AMD is one of the advanced forms of macular degeneration where you develop abnormal blood vessels under the retina that can bleed and leak fluid, thereby damaging the retinal tissue and sometimes causing scarring and atrophy in the area. And uh, this development of these blood vessels and the downstream ramifications of it lead to decreased vision for these patients. Um, Geographic atrophy, on the other hand, is when you have uh, what's referred to as atrophy, or death of the cells that form the outer portions of the retinal tissue. And geographic atrophy is an advanced stage of dry AMD. Um, And so there is no abnormal bleeding or leaking of blood vessels that you get in the wet form. And in contrast, you get these patches or geographic areas of cell loss that develop and that are associated with parts of the retina that do not function and cannot properly sense light or properly sense an image in that part of the retina
0: Are there um is it possible somebody could have one form in one eye and a different form in the in the other eye
1: Uh yes it is that's that's an interesting question so um So you have some patients that do have both eyes with wet AMD and other patients that have both eyes with geographic atrophy, but then you can have patients that have the wet form in one eye and geographic atrophy in their other eye, and the exact reasons for that are not completely understood. Um, Furthermore, you can actually have uh, an eye with wet AMD that develops atrophy in the eye, which is in fact a major cause contributing to the vision loss in wet AMD eyes. And then you can also have eyes with geographic atrophy that convert to the wet form of macular degeneration. So there there definitely is crossover as well as one eye with wet and one eye with dry that can happen.
0: Thanks, that's interesting. We get that question a lot here on the chats. Um, In terms of the, the similarities and differences between wet AMD and geographic atrophy, Are there treatments available for one or both of those um, forms of AMD?
1: Right. So for quite a while now, wet AMD has had uh, treatment that comes in the form of eye injections. Uh, Many patients have heard of them, and probably some of the patients on the line uh, may be receiving these injections. But uh, these treatments were a major breakthrough for the field of wet AMD treatment because they really can... Stabilize the vision and, in, in a good number of cases, improve the vision. Uh, this is in contrast to geographic atrophy, which remains an incredible unmet need for our field. Uh, geographic atrophy really is estimated by itself to still be causing around 20% of the legal blindness in North America, and there still is not a approved treatment for geographic atrophy, and so I, I consider it one of the highest priorities in the field of ophthalmology, finding a treatment for GA.
0: Wow, so that, that's a, a pretty startling statistic to hear that it's 20% of the uh, the legal blindness in, in in older in older populations. And you know, kind of in your experience, um, are we getting better at diagnosing and managing? geographic atrophy, you know, kind of in the absence of a treatment? Are we getting better at, at sort of understanding it and helping um, helping the patients uh,
1: along the way? We are. I mean, I would say the the diagnosis of geographic atrophy um, has not been that difficult as a clinician, but, but really what has been a challenge over the years and where we have made progress is just understanding more and more what is going on in geographic atrophy, um, what makes some lesions perhaps um, develop faster or grow faster than other lesions, the various mechanisms that could be at play. It it And it's turned out that as we've learned more, there certainly have been even more questions that have come up that, that remain to be answered as the next frontier in our understanding. But I think that it's it's been a long road of uh, understanding geographic atrophy, and we really have started to make some progress. I, I know that my patients with geographic atrophy, I I do feel the the weight of the conversations that I have with them when patients come in and tell me that they have lost more vision and are now unable to read or perform some of the daily tasks that they love to do. And the strong wish that really the patient and I feel that there should be a treatment that we can offer them. And so while it's been a long road of uh, Development for treatments for geographic atrophy. I really do think that now there are some really promising drugs in clinical trials that we can be hopeful for.
0: Well, that's great. Now it gives us a great hope for the future, and we'll we'll turn to uh, to an overview of some of those treatments in a moment. Um, before that, you know, there's there's the treatment side of the coin, and then there's the the daily life, the lifestyle, um, exercise, diet. Etc. Are there things that that um, in lieu of a treatment that that people can do um, with geographic atrophy that are in their best interest?
1: I do think there are things that people can do, and I think that especially uh, preventative measures even before geographic atrophy can can really be taken. I think that a healthy lifestyle, healthy diet, uh, cannot be underestimated, and we know, for example. Smoking is an incredibly large risk factor for macular degeneration, and smoking cessation uh, you know, today for a patient can make a difference, we think, in the future um, changes in their macular degeneration. We know that um, what are called the AREDS vitamins, are a lot of the patients on the line have heard of these vitamins, which are an antioxidant formulation studied by the National Eye Institute and found to be helpful for the intermediate stage of the disease. Um, Those vitamins can potentially slow down development of advanced forms of macular degeneration and are worthwhile to take. And and of course, regular eye exams, not forgetting that your ophthalmologist can pick up things in your eyes uh, before you may notice a change in vision. And so there are certainly simple things that can be done, including healthy lifestyle smoking cessation that can really healthy preventative measures and that can allow patients to feel some empowerment that they do have some control over what's going on to some extent.
0: Great. Thanks. And so Dr. Kim, you mentioned the smoking cessation. Um, you know, I think a lot of us that, um, you know, aren't doctors, you know, understand why smoking is bad for, you know, for lungs and lung disease and lung cancer and all that. Why, uh, how does smoking affect your eyes?
1: So, um, I think one of the the biggest ways that smoking can affect your eyes as it does many parts of your body is that it's considered to create a lot of oxidative stress on the tissue. And oxidative stress is considered one of the major uh, kind of starting mechanisms for macular degeneration. And so um, there really is just a, a wealth of data suggesting the role of oxidative stress, but also the role of smoking as a risk factor for macular degeneration, but, but having said that, there is still ongoing research trying to really further understand how smoking exactly affects uh, macular degeneration, and I know that, in fact, I've seen some study that is currently ongoing from uh, Massachusetts that the Bright Focus Foundation is funding, and so more work needs to be done. But it has to do with at least oxidative stress, but potentially other mechanisms as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And,
0: and you pointed out uh, diet and exercise. I mean, do you have patients that ask you, like, is it too late? You know, if these are folks that are, about, you know, a little little bit older, or their eyesight, you know, is starting to deteriorate, like, is it, like, should should somebody uh, try to change that part of their of their life, you know, regardless of their their age or, or vision condition?
1: Absolutely, I think that we should never feel like it's too late to live a healthier lifestyle. And um, not only would that have ramifications on that patient's entire health, but it can be beneficial at the eye. And, and I think we should never feel like it's it's too late, so to speak. Um, I think it can only be helpful. And I encourage that for my patients when they ask me that question.
0: Thank you. We have a, a question from a listener wondering, um, are the different forms of geographic, of AMD that you mentioned, are any or all of these forms genetic? I mean people worry about their children and their grandchildren. Is that a, um, should right. they be?
1: Right. So, AMD and, and geographic atrophy as part of AMD are, are considered a, a complex disease, and, and what that means is that there are probably multiple factors that go into uh, causing one patient to develop macular degeneration as as opposed to another. And some of those risk factors are environmental. So, for example, we mentioned smoking and and potentially the role of of diet. Um, But also, there is a a large literature showing uh, genetic risk factors for macular degeneration. So, people with certain gene variants have increased risk for macular degeneration. Um, at the same time, not everyone with macular degeneration may have a, uh, a genetic risk variant that's found or known. And so there is definitely a role for genetics, but exactly um, how still requires further research. We know that uh, some genetic uh, variants in the complement immune system pathway have been found and have led to some of the therapies that are up for um Potential uh, approved therapies down the road for geographic atrophy, and so I, I will simply say that there is a an important role for genetics, but it's not the whole picture.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that. the the distinctions there, and I want you to turn to to um, the future of, of geographic atrophy treatments. I know you said a few minutes ago that that uh, you're encouraged, you you see hope. I was wondering, um, why why do you feel that way?
1: Right, so. I think that many of us who've been following this field of geographic atrophy have felt that it's been a a very long and difficult road to arrive at potential treatments. And so there there actually is a long list of different therapeutics, different types of therapeutics um, that have been in clinical trials for geographic atrophy and actually have not worked. I also completed a phase two trial looking at a potent antioxidant called alpha-lipoic acid, and this is a study funded in part by Bright Focus, and we had a clear reason to test this agent, but we found the therapy did not work. And so the drug development pathway has been challenging to the point that some people were starting to feel that uh, geographic atrophy may be untreatable. But just not long ago um, some really exciting things have been happening in the field with uh, positive results from two phase two clinical trials that were both looking at what's called the complement pathway, which is a immune system pathway for the human body and and both studies had positive phase two results and are now in phase three clinical trials and and what that means is they're in the last phase, so to speak, for evaluation of the safety and efficacy, and and if these trials work, then there could be an approved therapy for geographic atrophy, and and I'm actually very uh, optimistic about these drugs that are in the phase three studies.
0: Well, that's great, and I was wondering, um, uh, you know, how are are these taking similar paths to a cure, or there's sort of a diversity of approaches that that some of these take?
1: Right, so... um, There are a lot of different approaches that are currently in clinical trials for geographic atrophy, and uh, I can talk about a few of these. And so I'll go back first to the um, two drugs in clinical trials in Phase 3 for the complement immune system pathway. And so this is um, a pathway of the immune system that's been highly implicated as a, a risk factor and has a strong relationship with macular degeneration. And there are two different drugs that are inhibiting different parts of that pathway and both of them found um, somewhat similar results in their phase two trials. And the fact that these two independent trials had similar results for me gave me a lot of confidence that they really uh, have the potential to, to work. And so these two drugs are in phase three and I would really say that it's these, these are studies that are worthwhile to consider enrolling in if you're a patient with geographic atrophy. Um, you know There are some complexities with potential development of wet macular degeneration in some of the eyes in these studies, but these were caught early and wet AMD is treatable, whereas geographic atrophy uh, still needs a treatment. And so I think that this is uh, one approach that these Two drugs are in the same class for that is um, something that's promising for geographic atrophy. Uh, other approaches that have um, been taken are antioxidant therapies, and um, also I know that there are various studies looking at um, stem cell approaches, and there are studies looking at uh, modulating the visual cycle, and so there are different mechanisms that science has shown to play a role in geographic atrophy. Multiple, they may be overlapping mechanisms, and and so there's been a really a, a whole bag of uh, approaches that people are trying, which which gives us hope. It may be that down the road uh, more than one drug can be used at the same time to improve geographic atrophy for our patients.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah, I think I think that's a uh... It's interesting to see the different different approaches that scientists are taking. And for all the ones you mentioned, you you mentioned uh clinical trials several times. And I'd like to, to, to kinda of turn to talk about clinical trials because I think for most of us clinical trials were this question that's on the bottom of the form when you're signing in at the doctor's office and you don't really know what it is and you just reflexively check no. And I think COVID has brought um Clinical trials, you know, into the into the forefront of the news. But, you know, I I still think it's one of those things everybody's heard of, but nobody understands. And so it's interesting to see how much of your vision research and your colleagues' vision research is done through clinical trials. So, I was wondering if 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 listeners are interested in learning more about clinical trials um, for macular degeneration, what should they do? Um. Well,
1: I think that. uh First of all, there there is some information available on the internet about clinical trials, and it's, you know, for example, the clinicaltrials.gov website lists um, a lot of the clinical trials, and you're supposed to list the information about your trial on that website. So that provides some structured information, but I, but I think that you know one of the more important ways for a patient to get information is you know if you have a doctor that you trust, to ask your doctor about the clinical trials that may be available, and whether there is a trial that is relevant to you as a patient, and whether you should consider enrolling in one of the studies. Um, you know, clinical trials are really what has led to the drugs that we have today. So, these treatments for wet AMD, which make a remarkable difference in the lives of these patients, they have only come to approval and they have only come for clinical use as standard of care treatments because of clinical trials and because of the patients that participated in those trials. And so um, regulated clinical trials are uh, carefully monitored for both safety and efficacy parameters. And um, I think it's uh, something that patients can do to help contribute to the field of medicine. There's kind of this pay it forward aspect to trials where the drugs that we have now are only available to us because of prior patients that were willing to participate.
0: That's a great point. Really speaks to the the selflessness and the, the sort of the, the citizenship uh, that, that many many people take in in, in um, being a part of clinical trials. Now, for for your patients, are there common questions or concerns that that, that they may ask you about regarding clinical trials?
1: Right. So I think that. Um, uh a lot of the concerns about the trials for patients has to do with safety and i think that it's important to to ask those questions first of all i mean it's, it's your your um going to be your eye as a patient entering the study and and uh, you're making a um a volunteer contribution to the study and you deserve to know everything that you'd like to know about a trial that you might be entering but you know um Clinical trials should have a independent safety monitoring committee that is overseeing the safety of the study, and they should already have many safety mechanisms in place to know what to do if there's any safety concern that develops for a patient enrolled in a trial. And so I think that patients should feel comforted and, and should know that clinical trials are perfectly designed by experts, they go through regulatory oversight by the Food and Drug Administration to make sure that make sure. the safety parameters and the safety monitoring are in place for the studies. And and I think that um, understanding that should allow the patients should to have some comfort in enrolling. And I think that also, it depends on the phase of the study, so just for... General information for our patient audience. You know, there there are phase one trials, which are earlier. You know, the first phase where a small group of patients is enrolling in a study to test a drug therapeutic, and your primary goal for that study is to look at um, safety parameters. And then drugs that pass that phase then go into phase two, where you're further understanding safety parameters, but also potentially looking at some effectiveness data. And then the drugs that have succeeded in phase two then go to phase three, which is where you need um, success in that phase to potentially have an approved drug. And so, particularly phase three trials, patients should have some comfort in uh, the safety of the study and the potential efficacy of that drug. But all of the phases are important, all of them are uh, carefully monitored for safety of the patients.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, thank you. And kind of related to that, um, I think most of us are aware that in a clinical trial, some people do not get the medicine that that that's being tested. They get a placebo. Um, what do you say to patients that want to know if they're going to get a placebo or want to know what if I, you know, what if by not getting the medicine my, my vision gets worse? How does how does that work in a clinical trial setting?
1: Right. So So first I'll I'll say that um, especially in the stages of the clinical trials where you're looking to see if a drug works, um, really the best way to know is to compare patients that received the drug to those patients that did not receive the drug and to make sure that both the investigators as well as the patients are not really knowledgeable about whether they got the drug or didn't get the drug or whether they received, for example, the placebo. Because that's the way to get the best quality data. And then later, after the trial is completely done, then um, the two groups of patients, those receiving the drug and those receiving the placebo, can best be compared to really have a better understanding of whether the drug worked. And so this process called randomization, where a patient enters a study and then is not sure if they're getting the treatment or potentially a placebo, is critically important for us to really know is a drug working. Now, that of course does mean that as a patient perhaps as a patient really hoping to get a study drug that you may not you may not get it. But I think that um, the value of that contribution is incredibly important and I just can't say enough about how that is really the pay it forward aspect of studies where um everyone has to kind of play the game appropriately and play the game fairly to get to the end and then hopefully have a drug that is found to work and then reach approval.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's I think it's very well phrased and I, I agree we're we all have a, a shared goal of of um new new and better treatments. And to our listeners, uh Bright Focus has a publication, a brochure uh called Clinical Trials, Your Questions Answered. It's free of charge and it and it goes it explains how trials work and and some of the, the the terms that that Dr. Kim has mentioned and some questions to ask your physician. So to anyone on this chat, if you'd like that uh, mailed out to you free of charge, um, at the end of today's chat we have a voicemail box so you hear a tone. You can leave your name and U.S. mail address to get you a free copy of Clinical Trials: Your Questions Answered. And um, you know one of the things that that's uh, you know that, that's in that publication is should a patient expect to either have to pay to be on a clinical trial or conversely uh to get paid for a clinical trial how does how does that tend to work
1: right so um you know something that uh, whether a patient is paid or gets paid is something that deserves scrutiny in clinical trials so it's there are certainly clinical trials where a patient may not get um really uh any payment at all, and then there are other clinical trials where trials. And this is not uncommon where there is some uh, partial reimbursement to patients, which is really meant to cover their uh, time and effort for actually participating, but is not supposed to be uh, such a large amount that it creates some unfair bias towards the patient participating in the study, and these amounts of you know payments to patients are carefully scrutinized by uh, what are called institutional review boards or you know groups of uh, a committee that reviews um, the safety and appropriateness of of these types of aspects of clinical trials um, as a, as an example, uh, there are some uh, aspects where you can hear about trials where patients actually have paid to be to be part of a quote unquote clinical trial, and some of these have been um, what have been touted as stem cell clinical trials. And there have been patients that have been paying more than several thousands of dollars to receive a stem cell treatment and to be considered a patient enrolled in a clinical study for stem cells for macular degeneration. And, and I would say that I would be highly cautious, and, and I really would beware any clinical trial where you as a patient are being required to pay someone to get into that study well no that's a
0: it's a great concern and I think it re- reinforces um you know i think what I've heard you you mentioned several times today, just how important it is to have that conversation with with your uh, with your doctor and with your family and and learn you know learn as much as much as you can but yeah it it does sound like a great opportunity for People who often feel that a disease such as geographic atrophy is is just you know can can feel overwhelming can feel can feel pretty uphill at times to to be a part of it and um, I know you've given us a great sense of some of the the drug development uh, um, you know opportunities that are in the pipeline. Just, you know, in the time we've left, are there other things about AMD besides drug development that uh, where you feel like research is making some progress in the last couple of years?
1: Um. There there are. I think that something that we'd like to do is to find better ways to detect changes in the eye relevant to geographic atrophy. And, and um, there's a, a whole list of papers in this area of research, some of which, again, has been funded by Bright Focus, because the, the challenge in these trials is that these lesions of geographic atrophy, they expand on a, at a relatively slow pace, and so it takes time to, to see whether a drug is actually affecting the growth rate of a lesion because you have to wait to see how it's changing over time. And so one of the areas of research is, is looking into ways that we can kind of uh, fine-tune our understanding or fine-tune our methods of looking for changes in geographic atrophy lesions whether that's through um, imaging or functional tests for uh, for patients, and so that type of monitoring and further understanding how the lesions change and how that affects visual function is an important area of, of research. It's, it's kind of referred to as looking for additional endpoints or trial outcomes for these clinical studies.
0: Well, that's great. And and so for for you, what's uh, what's in your what's in your future? Where do you want to uh... Uh, continue to go in, in AMD research?
1: Um, uh, personally, I, one of my interests has uh, been in the uh, complement field for geographic atrophy, and I think that uh, there are some interesting drugs, not only the ones that are currently in phase three clinical trials, but also other complement therapeutics that are in development Um whether those are earlier phase clinical studies or preclinical studies. And so that's been uh, one of my interests. And as a someone that's primarily a clinician and someone that's involved in clinical trials, I've, I've uh, you know, enjoyed collaborating with people that are scientists in the complement field.
0: Well, that's that's great. I appreciate it. So Dr. Kim, I just want to uh, conclude by, you know, asking sort of a big picture question, your experience in the clinic and in the lab. Is there sort of a overarching lesson you learned, observation you've noticed, or piece of advice that you like to give patients uh, and their families? Sort of a a big picture final uh, final thought before we conclude for the day.
1: Uh, sure, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think life these days feels incredibly complex on a day in day out basis, and and especially in the time of this COVID nineteen pandemic. There's added complexity and challenges and and many competing interests for for our day as we go through it. Um, but, you know, I, I think we have to always remember that there's always an opportunity to try to make a positive impact on the world. And, you know, I think that many people often ask, what can I get out of something or what's in it for me? But perhaps we should Always remember to ask and really prioritize the question of what can I do that would be helpful and that would make a positive impact on the world. And so I can say, at least for me, with all the competing interests in my life as I go through each day as an academician, you know, I try to always return to this idea of what brought me into this field, and, and which is to try to make a positive impact and to try to let that guide the decisions that I make.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, Dr. Kim, on behalf of Bright Focus and all of our listeners, I just wanted to thank you. I think you were uh, uh, very informative and very very clear and easy to follow, and, and I think you, you gave a lot of um, very very helpful advice. I just want to say thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Well, great. Uh, so on behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, this concludes the November 2020 Bright Focus chat, and uh, thanks and stay safe. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.